0: Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Prairie Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. So that's why Tommy says, Justice happened, she said. That was justice for Andre Galton. Faraday referred all his cases to other lawyers after that. I took a few, and he never stepped foot into a courtroom again. She stubbed out what was left of her cigarette. In the story, she said. I'm sure the civil rights lawyers tell that one a lot, Barr said. And now, you want to put me in church into that? Is that it? Am I the guy who sent the dog down the hill after Galton? There's degrees, Detective Bosch. Even if Church was the monster you claim, he didn't have to die. If your system turns away from the abuses inflicted on the guilty, then what's next but the innocence? You see, that's why I have to do what I'm going to do to you in there. For the innocence. Well, good luck, he said. He put out his own cigarette. I don't need it, she said. Bosch followed her gaze to the statue above the spot where Galton killed himself. Chandler looked as if the blood was still there. That's justice, she said, nodding at the statue. She doesn't hear you. She doesn't see you. She can't feel you, and she won't speak to you. Justice, Detective Bosch, is just a concrete blonde. Hello and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please don't forget to rate us 5 stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thembluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now all that's out of the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 13 through 16 of The Concrete Blonde. Last time on the Thin Blue Lion Podcast, we explored how doubt and fear shaped chapters 9 through 12 of The Concrete Blonde. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 13 through 16. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intent to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so please proceed with extreme caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line Podcast Mary Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Bosch heads to Sylvia's and finds her reading a book report from her 11th grade class. She asks how things went, and Bosch admits that everything's going to shit. Harriet confesses to Sylvia that he knocked down and humiliated a man. Sylvia complains that Harry doesn't talk much about himself, and that's a problem that she worries about a lot. After a view of investigative files, Harry drives to Dr. Locke's home to confer about a new pattern he discovered. As Locke is contemplating the information Harry gave him, Harry calls Amato the coroner. He asks what happened to the rape kits he testified about in court and whether the evidence was still viable. When Armando assures him that it should be, Harry asks him to pull the kits from victims 7 and 11 and compare pubic hairs. Harry explains his theory, and Armando reminds Harry that during his testimony, he mentioned that victims 7 and 11 had extensive vaginal tearing. The next day in the court, Bosch tries to get Belk to get a continuous, but Belk disagrees. Belk thinks that Harry's trying to avoid being questioned by Chandler, Harry tries to tell him what's going on, but Belk won't listen. Belk tells Harry that he can't control this trial and he better be prepared to get on the stand. To the surprise of all, Chandler rests her case. During a smoke break, Chandler and Harry discuss how inept Belk is. Harry gets on the stand and gives his history as a police officer and describes his career right up to the Dollmaker Task Force. Belk questions him about the night he received the phone call that led to the church's death. Belk asks Harry a number of questions and Bosch is able to feel them comfortably. During her cross-examination of Bosch, Chandler questions him about the number of people he had killed. Chandler also asks Bosch if the fact that his mother's murder went unsolved was why he joined the police department. Also during cross, Chandler asks Bosch If he stopped all the killings. Before answering, Belka objects and requests a sidebar, at which time the judge calls for a break. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 13 through 16 is, first resolve what must be done. Solutions will then become evident. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. We start chapter 13 off with Harry coming home to Sylvia. And, you know, as a police officer, you know, been married 20 plus years. This interaction between Sylvia and Harry is paramount to like this just being recharged or soothing from coming home from a bad day. And Harry and Sylvia are talking and, you know, he's telling Sylvia. You know, she seemed like she said to him, hey, you seem like to be in a good mood. And he said, well, now everything seems to be going to shit, but not here. And again, I can't tell you how vital that is in your police career to have like a safe space and, you know, have a person that you can come home to. You know, we deal with the worst side of things. Most people call us when things go wrong. And so just getting a daily, hourly, probably minute dose of that, It is great to have a safe space to come home to. And I think Michael Conley captures that in this interaction between Bosch and Sylvia. You know, we now get to Harry telling Sylvia why he doesn't want her to come to court. And because, you know, it's been building up, building up, building up. Because for the last 12 chapters, it's always been looming. And he doesn't want uh, Sylvia to see or hear things that's not in his control. And I think, well, I know for a fact, that's selling, that's selling Sylvia short. But I don't think Harry sees it right now. Um, or maybe he doesn't want to taint the, that, that image that Sylvia has of him. But either way, we now get to see exactly why Harry doesn't want uh, Sylvia to come to court. One of the great things about having uh, novels that intertwine with each other in this universe that Michael Connolly is starting to build in these first three books is they kind of work off of each other. And remember, back in the Black Echo, Sylvia, who Sylvia is, is Cal Calexico Moore's uh, wife, um, ex wife. And throughout Harry's interaction with Sylvia, he kept saying, Cal, how could you fuck this up? Or what happened for him not to, him and Sylvia to break up? And now Sylvia tells Harry, you know, she infers, look, I need to know who you are. I need to get to the part that you're hiding because this is what happened to my last re- in relationship. And again, just to refresh everyone's memory, her last relationship, she had a husband who was hung up on the past and he couldn't let go of the past. And that kind of, you know, didn't kind of, it messed them up. And now we see it, you know. So now I like how Michael Connolly answers those questions because they were kind of um, left out hanging in the last book, in the Black um, Ice. And, you know, a lot of people, um, if you rank the books, you know, the Black Ice really doesn't come off as, you know, being one of his um, signature books. And I think sometimes people overlook the Black Ice, but the Black Ice has a lot of good stuff in there. And again, it goes to the character and the character development of Harry Bosch. And, you know, I really do understand that what Sylvia's talking about here. You know, as as again having um, a, a wife who understands the police world to get that that comforting that comforting uh, atmosphere comes at a cost, and it comes at a cost is to reveal. Some signs of you that you might not want to reveal, but you got to, you know, let it go to at least somebody. And I think Sylvia's proven that she can handle it. I just wish that Harry believed her that she could handle it. But, you know, that's our boy Harry and, and he's a lone wolf and, uh, oh, excuse me, the lone coyote. And so you see this p- push, pull or his reluctance to let Sylvia in on this particular portion of his life. and. I think it's going to come back to bite him. And again, I'm not giving any spoilers, but just human nature, that kind of um, wall that, that he builds and don't want at least anyone to, to climb over does come at a cost. You know, it, again, any guy who's listening to this particular podcast understands what happens next. Because, again, from the book, Bosch nodded and looked down, he didn't know what to say. He was too burdened by other thoughts to get into it now. You want extra crispy? He finally said, fine. That's what Celia says. Boy, that fine? Guys, how many times have you been on a receiving end of that fine? You know exactly what that means. Like, it, 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 it's like a gut punch because anytime time my wife, I got into an argument with my wife and she said fine. Again, I think all guys if we raise our hands like, oh boy, yep, yeah, that's it. That's, we're done. We're in trouble because the fine just kind of puts a period to whatever you were talking about. And you know, again, just the poet. You know, um, again, I know one of uh, Michael Conley Conley's books is called The Poet, and for another reason. But you know, Michael Conley is a poet in itself because every episode of this podcast, I've been trying to point out different. Um, Captions or different um, words that he put, he wove, he weaves together that just grabs me. And again, one of these things that just grabs me again from the book. Bosch the bottle and kept staring, reading the names, dates of the deaths, looking at the faces, all of them lost angels in a city of night. Like wow, I mean, does that grab you? I mean, just his way of just of putting words together just gives me this visual presentation. I'm a visual guy, and I learn it from a visual um, presentment, and just him weaving those type of words together. Again, lost angels in the city of night. Boy, that's some good writing right there. One of the things that, and I I think Sylvia is a little bit naive in some of the stuff when it comes to having a homicide um, husband or a person who works in homicide or, or those type of victim-type crimes. Because something happens here that's really important because, you know, Sylvia walks in on Harry while he's reading the case files of the old victims, kind of get trying to get inspiration on what the hell happened so he can get, uh, so he can then find out what was what happened when it comes to the concrete blonde. And, you know, Sylvia walks in and she's, you know, she's startled. She says, you're just looking at those, you know, photos. You're just staring at them. And he makes a point to say, I do it because I have to. And that is classic. I mean, we are cops. I mean, and and you, especially with those type of crimes, you know, be it homicide, um, child abuse, all those, you have to look at that evidence. Or if you don't, who else will? And it's not that you're gonna be held responsible because if you didn't look at all the evidence, but that is part of the job. And that's part of making what makes a good investigator is to look at the things and go to places that most people do not want to look at or places or go to the places that most people don't want to go to. And this particular interaction between Harry and Sylvia, you know, Michael Connolly shows the light and dark, the yin and the yang, the push and pull, or wherever you want to call it of Sylvia and Harry. And Harry recognizes he doesn't have a certain cynicism or the lack of cynicism that Sylvia has. Cause you know, uh, Sylvia's asking Harry to, you know, listen to a particular um, essay that she given a a particular uh, student. And again, you know, Harry knows, he says, you know, one of the things he loves about Sylvia is that she she saws the beauty in things and he sees the darkness in things. And again, I know it because a lot of times police officers, we become so jaded and so callous when it comes to our heart because you have to. You kind of can't get into um, the things you see and do and surviving on a daily basis without developing, a, and I think even Harry says it here, a callus on your heart. And at times that would be very cynical and take a very skeptical view of a situation. And it's great to have someone who sees the light or gives the other side or gives someone the benefit of the doubt when it comes to certain aspects of just regularly normal things. And again, Harry says it here, you know, uh, he's, you know, she saw the beauty of things when he saw the darkness. And I think that was really cool. That was really great because it's true. And, you know, again, the familiarity that Michael Connolly has woven here. So remember last podcast when I said that investigators have to be very resourceful when it comes to gathering information. So Harry calls up Locke. And Locke is kind of um, hesitant to let Harry come over to talk about some of the things that Harry thinks is going on. The concerns a follower or two people committing this particular um, these homicides, and he uses he utilizes um, Locke's curiosity to get Locke to agree to let him come over that night to uh, bounce off information. And again, this is you know the life that the cops leave is not really a nine to five job. You have to go when evidence or the investigation is, is going. You know, I told you before, I would get a call from you know, sources at two o'clock in the morning and you can't say, oh um, yeah, call me back at nine o'clock. You know, by nine o'clock the next day, it was over. So you had to get your ass up and go. So again, this represents a little bit, one, um, how resourceful an investigator has to be and two, how you have to go when the evidence and when the inspiration hits you, you got to keep on rocking and rolling with your investigation. And you know, Bosch's interaction with Locke is very typical for especially academia. I know a lot of times certain people in academia looked at police officers not as public service, which we are, but kind of beneath them a little bit because I mean, you know they have doctorates and all this kind of stuff, and you know the doctors and the, the different degrees. And it's happened to me a couple of times because um, Michael Conley makes a note that. One when Harry got to Locke's house, Locke didn't offer him to sit down or something to drink or you know any of the just social norms that you would do with anyone coming to your house. It was straight to it was straight business. How can I help you? And that and that's happened to me before. And I, again, I thought it was a great depiction of how Michael Conley uh, captures the interaction between some people in the public and law, law enforcement officers. And, you know after. Uh, well, when, while Locke is thinking about all the information Harry gave him concerning the different aspect of the investigation, and maybe now there's this quote-unquote follower or a person who was piggybacking off of Norman Church's murders, Bosch calls uh, Amado. Again, remember, Amado was the coroner who testified in court, who, who was the one who was gathering all the particular evidence concerning the different victims. And so they were able to put together that victim 7 and 11 was probably the follower because of the pattern that they found and also that 711 had was really brutally raped. And so Locke and Bosch kind of start putting all these pieces together about the follower building a profile a person who has intimate information about the investigation and all this kind of stuff and one thing I love about what happened here is Bosch starts going at the hard truths and some of the hard facts that they worked out that this follower might be a cop. And that's a very dangerous thing. And, you know, based on some of the attributes of the follower, Bosch automatically thinks of Ray Moore. And, you know, because Ray was in, in vice that dealt with prostitutions and all that kind of stuff. And he was part of the task force. so. Bosch automatically goes to Ray Moore and he does it. But what I like is next is that, you know, again, from the book, he knew he had to proceed as cautiously with an innocent man as he would a guilty man. And, you know, that's, could you just imagine being a police officer thinking that if it got out that you were possibly a target of an investigation concerning uh, being a serial um, murderer? Boy, oh boy. So, again, I like how Harry is not afraid to go there but he also respects and appreciate the situation and you know, you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this, I'm going to bring this up because this is just who, you know I have not made it uh, I made it abundantly clear that I like Edgar and you know so Harry gets home after leaving Locke's place and he had a, three phone calls one was from Sylvia, one was from Edgar who said hey R.H.D., well, he got a call from Irving. R.H.D. kicked him off the case, and she and another guy uh, who's taken over the investigation, and he got a call from um, um, Ray Moore. Well, you know, Edgar says to Bosch, watch your six. And, you know, I like that because, again, this is the third book where Edgar is looking out for Bosch. You know, watch your back, buddy, because they're coming at you, you know. And I like that, you know. it Again, it shows who... Edgar really is at heart. You know, he doesn't have the passion that Harry has when it comes to these cases. But believe me, give me a partner like Edgar any day and twice on Sunday because he has Bosch's back. And at the end of the day, give me a partner that has my back. And so the next day in court, Bosch and Belk get into it because Bosch tells Belk, dude, you got to get a continuance. And he tries to tell him what's going on. The first thing that fucking Belk says to him, whoa, 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 if you're going to confess to me, I don't want to hear it. I mean, th- th- again, that's the second time he's told Harry, you know, it, quote unquote, I don't want to hear it when it comes to possibly getting some evidence. And I said, what a what a piece of shit uh, that Belk is. Because again, I told you last podcast, anytime uh, uh, an attorney has to take information that a, an investigator wants to give him, you don't have the, the time and space to say, whoa, 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 I don't want to listen to that right now. You know, I want to just win my case. Now, one of the things that Belk did say when it was, uh, to, he, that Belk said to Harry, which is true, again, for the book, you have to understand one thing, Bosch. This is a trial. The controlling factor of your universe right now, you don't control it. And that's true. Once you go to court, you step into that courtroom. You, you lost control. Outside the courtroom is your control. You can do things as a police officer, investigator, but inside that courtroom, you're out of control. You're not out of control. It's beyond your control. And that was a great statement because it's true. And, you know, Bosch tried to convince Belk to get a continuance. And he said, dude, basically, don't you want to know the truth? Don't you want to know what really happened? And Belk kind of comes back at him and says, when was the last time you put everything into an affidavit. When was the last time you testified to everything? You know, don't tell me what the truth is, Bosh. And it kind of played off. I mean, again, Michael wrote this book in 1994. And then in 2017, uh, Michael then writes another book called Two Kinds of Truth. The kind of truth that sets you free and the kind of truth that leaves you buried in darkness. Again, you know, you can't, you can't it's beyond co- coincidences that Michael put those two together. And again, I love the connectivity here. At least that's why I'm putting it together. I don't know if he meant to or not, but at least I'm putting those two together. That's what I got out of it. We finally get to Bosch and Belk. You know, it's been this elephant in the room between those two guys. And they finally, you know, pull away all pretenses about how they feel about each other. And again, from the book, you fool. She's going to stick it into you so deep it's going to come out the other side. You keep writing her off as having the judge's hand on her ass, but we both know that's how you deal with the fact that you couldn't carry her lunch. For the first time, get a delay. Finally, we get Harry pushes it up on Belk because it's true. I think the fact is he is terrified of of Honey Chandler. She's a great lawyer and she's a shark and Belk, is this lazy guy who doesn't seem to be putting in the same out of work that Honey Chandler is. But then, you know, hey, at least Belk can take it a little bit. Bell can um, dish it out a little bit because then Belk comes back over at the top and says, you're afraid of her, aren't you, Bosh? You don't want to take the stand with the cunt asking you questions, questions that might expose you for what you are. A, kill, a cop who likes killing people like, whoa, boy, that was a lot in that statement, you know. And then, I, like I said, last podcast, you got to have the attorney, the government attorney, believe you. And now we have the fact that Belk now believes Chandler in the fact that, that Harry is out there being a killer cop. And, but again, he still doesn't respect um, Honey Chandler because what? He, Harry is scared to be asked questions by the quote unquote cunt which again shows a lot about Belk right there, because again, he has to um, demean and to belittle Chandler to make himself feel good. You know, I was, I have been saying it for, since we started this particular book is how I think Harry was playing fire with the judge when it comes to not being in court at the defense table. When trial starts, and we see the judge finally admonish Bosch for not being there because during a break, you know, Harry rushes out, gets on the phone, and then he has to send a bailiff to go to tell Harry court starts. And as soon as he comes back in there, after he, the judge gives instruction, he uh, turns to Harry and says, and I expect you to be in your your seat when, when trial starts. And I've been waiting. Again, I wasn't setting you guys up, but I just know, no judge is going to allow that to happen. Over and over again. And I thought Harry has been getting away with murder. For the last couple of um, uh, chapters. By coming in late. Or not being where he's supposed to when trial starts. And you remember last podcast. When I said you know. That I felt things in my chest. And it was kind of funny because again. From the book. Bosch was beginning to feel the jitters. The uneasy feeling that came with approaching of the unknown. He felt the way he did before he climbed down the holes in the VC tunnel. For the first time in Vietnam, it was fear, he knew, blooming like a black rose in the pit of his chest. Yes, <laughs> that's it. That was what I was trying to relay last podcast. You know, I like the interaction too with Bosch and Bremer. So as Bosch is leaving the courtroom, um, f- waiting for the break, he confronts, well, Brimmer's falling behind, like, dude, what's going on? And Bosch tries, it. he's still trying to figure out who the fuck is leaking information to Chandler. And you know Brimmer seems to be affronted. You know he said, "Dude, I wouldn't do that to you, Harry. You're my main guy. You know, you're my most valuable guy." And I thought it was funny because Bosch still didn't apologize to Brimmer, but Brimmer values his um, information that uh, Bosch gives him. And we see Harry has, uh, you know, kind of likes Chandler. Now, he's already said it, but he likes her because of her being up front, you know, not ho- pulling punches, saying it like it is. And it's kind of like having this fighter mentality. Again, Bosch describes it as, you know, two boxers touching gloves before the fight. You know, and that's how he sees Chandler. One of the things that's so revealing to Michael Connolly's insight of community, especially minority communities, because You know, he wrote his book in 1994, and we see Chandler and Bosch talking about one of Tommy Faraday's clients who basically committed suicide because he had a slam dunk case, and it was a police abuse case. And you listen to that story, how Chandler describes it, why she's going to basically take Harry down, you know, for the innocence, as she called it. You know, and you see, it's kind of sad, and you see how far we've come, but then also how far we, as I keep saying we, as the law enforcement community has to go, and you can't stop, always got to keep trying to keep reaching out to these different communities, because again, we're there to protect and serve everybody, but it doesn't do any good if the community that you're, trying to, you're trying to protect and serve doesn't trust you and or are very suspicious of you. If you listen to the story why this individual killed himself, you think, my gosh, that could be happening in 2019. And again, it's kind of you got to say, well, boy, we still got a lot of work to do. We as in the law enforcement community has a lot of work to do. To take a quick break and go to the question of the day. And the question of the day comes from the Concrete Blonde, Chapter 15, which reads During a smoke break, both Bosch and Chandler discuss Belk. Chandler states, In a civil case, the chances of a win are almost a long shot. But going up against the city's attorney's office kind of levels the playing field. These guys like Bulk, (laughs) they couldn't make it on the outside. If you had to win in order to eat, your lawyer would be a thin man. He needs a steady paycheck from the city coming in, win or lose. Question, do you agree that government attorneys lack motivations to win because they get paid regardless? 88% of you say yes. 12% say no. Now, I can tell you right now, I have been, I told you before, I've seen lazy cops, lazy judges, lazy attorneys and I've seen lazy defense attorneys. So 88% of you, I totally understand where that myth comes from. And I think I've been very lucky to have attorneys in the government who have been just pit bulls. Now, again, like I said, I've been with some um, um, prosecutors i like, oh my God, please don't put me with that particular prosecutor. But majority of the times, most prosecutors I have dealt with Um, were were excited and motivated to win just because it was their job. So thanks a lot for those who participated in the poll. Um, Again, your feedback is great. And let's keep it going. And so back to hitting the streets. You know, now we have Harry taking a stand. Finally, we have him taking a stand concerning the whole dollmaker case. And Michael Conley did again, does a great job of showing what a good investigator or good police officer does when it comes to testifying, because testifying is an art. And I can tell you right now, my first time I testified, I was cotton mouthed and mushy mouthed and wasn't clear when it comes to my diction. And I used a lot of police lingo, trying to be cool. And yeah, that kind of lost the jury. So one of the things that I was fortunate to do was I went to a class, you know, for testimony, how to testify in front of a jury. And one of the things that, you, you know, you, they, they teach you, again, you sit straight up, you know, you, tr- you kind of keep your hands folded and you try to make, at least I did. I tried to make eye contact within every individual juror. Because I want to tell my story to them, I really didn't care about talking to the the prosecutor. And what I did was after I finished answering the question, I would turn and get the next question from the um excuse me, get my answer. I would take the uh, next question from the prosecutor and then turn to the jury and answer that particular question. So I kept doing that, you know, look to the left or whatever again, left, left or right, looked at the prosecutor, turn my head. Talk, give the answer to the jurors. And again, Harry tries to do that here. And, you know, we see actually, Harry actually does a great job of explaining why he didn't call for backup. Now, I, I have to admit, in my first podcast for this particular book, I was going under the assumption, giving Harry the benefit of the doubt, why he didn't take his rover because he wasn't used to it. Um, Having a rover, but he actually made a you know, he he made a good point. I totally forgot because I'm using, I'm thinking 2000, uh, what I retired in 2018. So, 2000 and I think we got all got individual radios, maybe 2010. So, for the last eight years, I had a handheld radio that I took all over the place. Here, Harry says, Well, you know, we, which is true, we had limited radios and you didn't take one back in 94. We had limited radios, especially portable radios. And, you know, you had to check them in and check them out before every tour of duty. And so that's one reason why he did not have a, a rover with him. And I was like, oh, gosh, I totally forgot about that. And he also explains a lot of different, you know, things that went into why he went through the door. Now, let's put something very relevant now. Everyone heard about the shooting in Florida. And the fact that that one police officer is on trial right now for not going in. So, Harry's telling you, hey, I thought there was another victim in there and I sprung into action. So, that kind of puts things in perspective because now what's relevant nowadays is that citizens expect police officers to go into danger. You run towards the danger, don't wait for backup, go in. Isn't that what this one particular officer? In Florida is being accused of not going in, sitting back on the corner waiting. And, you know, society got to make a decision. You know, I actually I know what the decision is. You want cops to go in because before I retired, we changed up our protocols when don't wait for backup. You go in. You go in. You think there's danger, you go in towards the problem. If there's a school shooting or whatever it is, you don't sit around waiting huddle, huddle waiting for a bunch of different police officers. We went through a bunch of different tactics that you can go in by yourself with a two-man unit, but they want you to go in, address the issue, don't wait. And, you know, so after Belk finished with Harry, Chandler gets up there in her opening salvo. Boy, I love it. Oh, Mr. Bosch, how many people have you killed? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> damn. Oh, boy. You know, again, I'm thinking, I'm sweating right now. If that was me on the stand, and that's the first question that the defense counsel asked, you like, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> you know, you, again, uh, honey slash money Chandler, she's good at her job. Again, one of the things that Michael Conley does is this dance that police officers go with defense counsels. When you understand and you feel like a question is inappropriate, you would do what we call a pregnant pause. You will hope that the prosecutor will get the inference and object but we see here uh belk is too busy right now he he's not even paying attention to the questions that chandler's asking harry and he missed harry's uh pregnant pause michael Conley does a great job of telling you the reader what cops are trained again from the book Bosch knew better than to show any anger towards her rather to make angry denouncements The rule of thumb was to answer each question as he was dealing with a person who simply was making a mistake. So he's absolutely right. You do have to maintain your composure because that's what you are professional. And that's that's what the jury expects. You know, you're supposed to be administering the law. You know, it's blind justice. So you don't want to bring your emotions into your decision making. And this is a great depiction of what you're supposed to do. Don't get angry. Take the questions. Because you know the defense counsel is going to try to throw you off, take the questions, listen to it thoughtfully, and then give a good answer. Now, also, too, remember I just said, do the same thing to the jury when the defense asks a question. You look at the... The jury the same way because you don't want to change up because you don't, you don't want the jury to say, oh, well, he's being um, helpful to the, the government attorney, but not to the defense attorney. Even though there's, a, there's an adversarial role that's implied, you still want to make sure that you give the same, I wouldn't say performance, but again, me being lack of better words, a performance that you just did with the prosecutor. So the defense asks you a question. You listen to the defense attorney. Thoughtfully uh, think about it, turn to the jurors, and answer the question. <laughs> you know, also, too, I was not, I have to admit this, I'm not, I was not beneath trying to throw the defense counsel off, because, again, I like you, again, from the book, will you please read the last paragraph of the summary section on the report in front of you? Bosh says, Yes picked up the paper and began to read silently. (laughs) (laughs) That's a cat and mouse. You know, then, you know, of course, Chandler said, "Uh, allow, please. I thought that was implied. And Bosch goes, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you play, that's a cat and mouse game. I did it. Most cops do it. Most defense attorneys know that's what's happening. And, you know, you got, you know, it, it, it just happens. Again, like I just said, it was a, it's an adversarial role. Everyone did it. And again, that was a good depiction of what happens with the the defense attorney. And, you know, we get more information about Harry and his mother and how it's coming out. And actually, the judge even said it to Bosch. you know, hey, I'm sorry, but he can't stop an attorney asking proper questions. And he asked Harry, does he want to take a break? And Harry says no. But, you know, we get more information about Harry's mom. You know these again, drip by drip by drip, about the circumstances of his mother's death, how it impacted Harry, and you really got to empathize with him because, but uh, again, Honey Chandler was just going raking him over the coals. You know, did it? You know, where's your father? What happened? How did that make you feel? All that kind of stuff. And one of the most important things she asked him, which I guess he said he never had thought about it, but You know, did the fact that his mother's death or murder went unsolved cause him to become a police officer? Again, I'm not going to do any spoilers later on, but then he actually said here he never even looked at it that way before. But then you start thinking to yourself, what was Harry's motivator or motivation to become a police officer? And then we see Chandler start to ask Harry questions about other killings. And Belk finally objects, and the judge said, you know what, we're going to take a break right here. So that's how the chapter ends. to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And for chapters 13 through 16 of The Concrete Blind, my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person is Harry Bosch. And I pick Harry because of his resolve. His resolve to be able to okay, look, something must went wrong. And, a matter of fact, he says it a couple of times in this particular these four chapters. hey, we, or I, the task force, messed up. We missed things, or da-da-da-da-da, or whatever. And he has resolved to Let's take a step back, re-examine the evidence, and see where we possibly made a mistake. Instead of trying to cover it up or place blame with someone else, Harry Bosch steps up to the plate time and time again and do what's right. And that resolve, after being punched in the gut, you know, concerning, like you said before, hate, he had no shadow of a doubt that he got the right guy. The right guy is in Norman Church. So my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters 13 through 16 is Hieronymus Bosch. This concludes chapters 13 through 16 review of The Concrete Blonde. Thanks for hanging out with me again. And again, I ask you to keep going to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and continue to rate us five stars or better. And also, like I keep saying, our podcast is growing by leaps and bounds, and it's all because of you. And I really feel heartfelt, uh, send a heartfelt thanks to you guys, because you must be telling your friends and family about the podcast, so if you can continue to do that, we can continue to grow. Also, don't forget to join us at www.dot.thinbluelinepod.dot.com for more investigative content. So next time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we will continue our deep dive into the Concrete Blonde, chapter seventeen through twenty. I'm Phil Parker. And on ten seven four the remainder.